Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. David up um, to speak today. I'm just going to read today's passage. And that's taken from Ephesians chapter 6, from verse 10 to 17. And it says... Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the armor, the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Please welcome David as he continues our series on the armor of God. Hope you had a good week. I have been up north in Yorkshire uh, teaching to 1,500 leaders, uh, a conference that I've been very much looking forward to speaking at, and um, slightly uncharacteristically for me, in the approach to the conference, I started thinking, why on earth am I doing this? Or maybe more precisely, why on earth have they asked me to do this? Like, I don't know whether I've got anything to say on the subjects that... I've been asked to speak on. And then, of course, you go from that to what happens if this bombs? I mean, you know, what happens if this really, really bombs? I appreciate this is entirely self-interested. You know, this is like, what will people think of me and how will I feel? So, you know, some of those things are playing out and then the beast from the east. Anyone know what I'm talking about? The, the beast from the east arrived and I find myself uncharacteristically anxious about travel. Am I going to get there? This is in North Yorkshire. Uh, Am I going to get there? And then I'm actually speaking at another conference in London on the Thursday. Am I going to get back again? So I've I've got all this stuff going around in my head, and I understand enough to know this actually matters because your confidence levels actually make a huge difference to anything you do. You know that, don't you? If you're going for an interview and you're confident, you will perform way better. If you want to date somebody and your confidence. It's likely to go a lot better. If you're doing sports or public speaking or just about anything at all, your confidence levels matter. So I knew this mattered. And so I've got all this going on and then I turn to the passage that we're teaching through at the moment. I mean, oftentimes we do a theme for a series, sometimes we do a book or a Bible character. Right now we're taking just a small number of verses and working through them week by week. And I turn to them, and verse 12 of Ephesians 6 says this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Interesting. Paul's saying here, to apply this to my situation, David, your battle is not just against your insecurities. As 
however real and present they are, but that there could be something more to play here. There could be a spiritual element. There could be a spiritual element here that you have to fight against that seeks to undermine your confidence or confuse or intimidate or tempt or distract. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I've got about two nodding heads. Anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. So, uh, now, the way that Paul talks about this is he talks about a literal adversary. And you find that through the New Testament. It seems that Jesus understood the devil to be a, uh, a, a real person, if you like, or a, a real angelic being. One time when Peter is talking and Peter is trying to persuade uh, Jesus to do things which, you know, which are going to be no good for him, Jesus actually says to Peter, he says, hey, get behind me, Satan. It's as if there's another power operating. There's another time he actually deals with the storm. He talks to a storm as he talks to demons in the Gospels. So it seems that within the New Testament, at least, the reality of a devil is there. It's not just. I remember many, many years ago as a teenager uh, talking with one of my teachers. One of my teachers said, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the devil. I think, the de I think evil is just the absence of good. He said, you know, if, if a room has not got light in it, if there's an absence of light, it's dark. And he said, in the same way, when you have an absence of good, that's when there's evil. Now, that isn't the New Testament understanding. Now, I appreciate for some people here, you may say, look, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to work my head about God and Jesus. Please don't confuse me by trying to add the devil in here. So, you will get benefit from this talk, whatever you think about the devil, okay? So, I'm just trying to give you a bit of bandwidth here. Now, that said, let me just explain two or three reasons why I'm personally persuaded that evil is not just the absence of good. And the first reason for that, or, or, or the, the first thing to say about that, is that to hear something of a more in-depth treatment than I've got sort of two minutes to do right now, listen to Liam's podcast of a couple of weeks ago. Liam spent quite a bit of time in his talk talking about this. Second thing is that to quote something Liam said, he said, once we get to the point where we believe in God, a loving creator who has come to save, redeem, and change our lives for the better, once we've gone there, I believe in him, then it's not very far to also say, well, look, we believe in a devil as well. But thirdly, I would say my experience of evil has been that at times it's malevolent and personal. For me personally, it's hard to talk about the Holocaust, for instance, and just say something as grim and desperate and terrible as that, or a number of other genocidal regimes that we had in the 20th century. It's very hard to say of those, in my mind, it's just the absence of good. As we hear stories just this week coming out of Syria, and some of the bombing that's going on, and apparent use of gas on children, and women, non-combatants, again, I'm like, it, this just doesn't figure to me. When I hear details of some of the terrorist attacks that we've experienced in this city and in cities around the world, it doesn't make sense to me. And actually, my own experience, as well as our more 
corporate experience, I think when you look at what the Bible has to say, they fit together actually very nicely and very well. So we're right in there in the deep end. We've got quite intense quite quickly this afternoon, haven't we? But uh, just to say, wherever you want to go on this talk, in terms of that, you will get some benefits. So just hang on in there. But because of my own convictions and what I think the Bible teaches, I'm going to assume, for the sake of this talk, that there is such a thing as the devil as well as, uh, as well as God. And what I want to do, what we're doing today, or what Paul does in this passage, is he takes the Roman soldier and he uses each part of armour of the Roman soldier as a metaphor for different elements of how to live the Christian life. And this afternoon we're going to look at the shield of faith. So it's interesting that Georgie earlier said, um, I think that God wants to increase our faith today. So I was sitting there on the front row and saying, thank goodness for that, because that's what I'm going to talk about. So that's good news as far as I'm concerned, but I think more importantly, good news for us all. So that's what we're looking at, shield of faith. What I'd like to do first is just a quick overview of what the New Testament has to say about our adversary. So we'll do that in five or ten minutes, and then we'll spend 15 or 20 minutes on the shield of faith, and then we're done. All right? So that's where we're going. First of all, overview of our adversary. The first thing is he's intelligent. Here's what Paul says when he writes to the Corinthians. He says, anyone, anyone you forgive, I also forgive, in order that Satan might not outwit, outwit us, for we're not unaware of his schemes. Interesting. It would seem that he has schemes, that he is intelligent. He's not like a landmine or a roadside bomb. Yeah, a roadside bomb just sits there till someone roll, rolls over it. Paul seems to be saying here there's something rather more deliberate and intentional here than just sort of passive evil that you might knock against from time to time. Second thing, and this is we're adding Peter's voice now to Paul, says 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says this, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Watch out. Now, if you've ever watched somebody who's not paying attention try and cross a busy road, you know it can, it can get pretty dicey. Because busy roads need attention. You need to be alert and of sober mind. Well, Paul says life is the same if you're living a spiritual life. You've got to wake up and you've got to be attentive. Why? Because... Because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I remember an old pastor who I got to know, he used to say this to his congregation. If you were the tempter, how would you trip you up? If you were the tempter, how would you trip you up? I think that's a great question. And I want to suggest we should all know the answer to that question. Because surprise is the first, is often, you know, it, that often trips us up. Someone says, oh, look what happened. And then you think, well, if I think back, this is exactly where I'm vulnerable. If only I'd faced it and said, this is, this is my weakness, then that actually hugely helps, especially, and I think that's part of what it means to be alert and to be attentive uh, to these things. It's interesting, too, that the metaphor of a lion, a lion will prowl after a herd looking for the outliers and the stragglers. Looking for those, not those, a lion's not going to go for those right at the heart of the herd. That's too much hard work. 
But if there's one that's weak or injured or a loner who is hanging way back or out to the side, then the lion will take it out. Which is also just a reminder of the importance of this community for each of us. We're stronger together than we are by ourselves. And when we're by ourselves, we can be much more easily snapped off. I know I have, some days I work at home. Some days it's great. Some days by about three o'clock, I'm in need of some company. If I've got meetings in the second half of the day, I'm amazed sometimes at just the, the sort of jolt, the lift it does, just sometimes walking into the church office. Quite sure it does this for everyone who walks into the church office. It certainly does it for me. Just the being with, it just lifts you. It's good to be alone. It's actually really important to be alone. But it's not good to be alone the whole time. Then we become vulnerable. So to be alert and of sober mind means that you know your weaknesses and you've got some people who give you strength. Which is why actually just meeting like this is a very rich thing to do the community and going for a drink afterwards even if you only have water the drink is not the point the point is the connection the point is the relationships that start to develop as a result the third thing about this sort of overview is that the church is involved in this battle as well it's not just individuals here's what Jesus says to Peter he says you're Peter And on this rock, I will build my church. He's like, Peter, you're going to be key to all of this. And then he says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter, you're going to be key, but watch out, there's a real battle going to go on. The gates of Hades wants to overcome the church. Why? Why What's so important about the church? Well, we've already touched on it. There is no better place to grow spiritually There's no better group of people to serve the West End or Covent Garden than this sort of community. So in spiritual terms, we we miss that. We're like, you know, coming, uh, coffee's not ready. Or, you know, someone sitting in my chair. It's not quite like at the Mermaid, the big theatre that we use. I literally know who's there and who's not. So I'm like, no, they're not sitting in their chair today. You guys are a little more flexible. Anyway, I digress. My point is, there's something much more important than the drinks we drink and the seats we sit in. That this has huge purpose to it. And that actually, the the forces that would oppose us would actually much rather you didn't attend or you only came very infrequently. That would really help. What else would help sink the West End, sink the Covent Garden service. Uh, If you didn't ever serve, that would be another really good way of making this community weaker. Another way would be if you never gave any money. Now, why do you have to mention money? Well, because life costs things. Hiring this place, getting the speakers, getting a new string for Johnny's guitar... Just, so don't give any money, ever. And the gates of Hades will be delighted. Don't love each other, fall out with each other and fight one another. That's another really great way of sinking the church. So actually, it's not just the individual who can be a straggler and get caught out. 
but we as a community, we just need to stop doing some basic things and the gates of Hades are like, yeah, win. So we should be aware of that. Fourth thing, here's the good piece of news, that our adversary is a defeated foe. He's a defeated foe. This is not uh, what theologians would call dualism. It's not that Jesus is strong and so is the devil and they're going to fight it out. That's actually Greek mythology. All the gods are largely equal and they sort of duke it out and fight together. No, this is the father sent the son and the son has defeated the powers of darkness. Here's how Paul puts it in Colossians. If we could have the next slide, Ed, please. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And the picture that Paul's got here is of a king who has gone out from the city and he's won a great battle. And then he brings back his defeated foe. He brings back his defeated foe's soldiers and he brings back all their riches and all their wealth and all their weaponry. And it's all tied up and it's all hauled down the main street. And all his subjects look and can see the defeat. They're not relying on a messenger who comes and says, oh, good news, we've won. They actually see it with their own eyes. It's a public spectacle. Now, we're told that Jesus has done exactly the same with darkness and with evil. He's tied it all up. He's tied up all the opposition and all the weaponry and wealth and everything. And he's going to make, and he has made a public spectacle of it. So when we're singing those songs about Jesus being wonderful and mighty and great, that is totally appropriate because that is what has happened. And you'll never understand this passage, Ephesians 6, unless you first have got the cross mattered and darkness was broken forever. So that's, if you like, the background. That's the background to this. And then we get to, excuse me, our verse for today which is verse 16. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the shield of faith so you can extinguish the flaming arrows. Now, you've all seen the films of the archer with the flaming arrows. I mean, you would have thought Google Images would have had some decent shots of this for me to show you this afternoon, but I couldn't find any. But nonetheless, you know the sort of thing. You know, Paul has in mind these archers and they pull back their arrows which are lit and then the soldiers lift their shield so that the arrows go into the shield sometimes they would douse the shield in water to make it easier for the arrows to be extinguished but what Paul is saying is that we've each been given a shield which can extinguish what are the flaming arrows I think in the context of Ephesians which is all about truth and the mind that these are thoughts and patterns of thinking that are destructive to you in your life. They're thoughts and patterns of thinking that are destructive to your way of life and to your following of Christ. What Paul's saying is that you have these thoughts are fired at you like flaming arrows. But he says you've been given a weapon in order to combat them. Now I want to suggest that there's three patterns of thinking which can make us particularly vulnerable. The first is this, our sense of identity, our sense of who we are. 
that has a huge impact on the way that you live. Let's just, let me just very quickly, you, <clears throat> you see what Paul says is that your sense of identity has changed when you come to Christ. Many people, in years where I have done lots of pastoral counselling, many people live with a deep sense of rejection or self-rejection at times of loathing or struggling or just being pretty unimpressed with themselves or just very deeply aware of our vulnerability and our weakness in other ways. Now what Paul says is that when we come to Christ, our identity changes. He says we were many of those things beforehand, but when we come to Christ, our identity changes. Now I want to show you what our identity is, and then I want to show you the incredible impact of knowing your identity can make in your life. So here's just five ways that our identity changes. Now, there's loads more, but five will do for now. Uh, John 15, verse 9, that we are loved. That we are loved. Most of us live with some sense of being unloved much of the time. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. Not only are we loved now, the apple of his eye, we're told, but also we're accepted. Paul writes, accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. We're loved, we're accepted. Thirdly, we're free from the grip of sin. You no longer have to live with habits and patterns and ways of living that you do not want to and that do not please Christ. That's what the whole of Romans 6 is about. We've not got time to unpack the whole thing, but to give you a verse uh, in the same way, says Paul, Romans 6 verse 11, count yourself dead to sin. If you're dead to sin, you can't sin. But alive he says, to God in Christ Jesus. It's not that you won't, it's more that you don't have to. Fourthly, that you have resurrection power in your life. Wow, I could do with some of that. I don't know about, I don't know what your your week looks like, but (laughs) this next week I'm looking at, I could do with some resurrection power. I could do with some of the power that rose Jesus from the dead in my life, experiencing that, flowing through my body. Yes, please. Fifthly, Paul says we're able to do all things through him who gives us strength. Wow. And he did. He survived shipwrecks and whippings and stonings and imprisonments. I mean, this guy did these things and then said, through Christ who gives me strength, I can live this way. This is the sort of, these are some of the ways our identity has changed. When I first started following Jesus seriously, I actually wrote a list of these and prayed through them every day until they became part of me. It's not like I don't need to be reminded, I often do. But nonetheless, it was hugely helpful to me. Now, when we understand our identity, it makes a huge difference. Let me tell you a story from the scriptures to illustrate this. David and Goliath. Many of you know the story. Quick reminder, Goliath experts say somewhere between seven and nine foot tall. This guy was Johnny Blake with Ed Stroud sitting on his shoulders, something like that. I mean, this guy was big. Not only was he big, but he had the armour and the weaponry to go with it. Huge, huge spear. And the Philistines were smart. They said, look, this is our secret weapon. The Israelites haven't got one of these. 
So rather than having a full-on battle, two armies against each other, let's put Goliath out the front every day and Goliath challenge one man to a duel and then whoever wins, wins the battle and the other army becomes subject to them. Let's do that. I mean, that's smart if you've got Goliath. It's daft otherwise. So Goliath comes out and jeers and taunts and tells them how stupid they all are and says, come on, why didn't you send one of you out to fight me? And if you defeat me, we'll become your subjects. And we're told these professional soldiers were dismayed and terrified. 1 Samuel 17, if you want to read it afterwards. They were dismayed and terrified. And you know what any team or group or army is like? The first day, it would have been like, what are we going to do? Then he came out the second day. No one responded. Then the third, then the fourth. Then, you know, and the army, in their own eyes, would have become smaller and smaller and smaller. And he would have become taller and taller and taller. Okay, enter side stage, David the shepherd boy, who's bringing food to his brothers. But he's got fresh eyes on this thing. So when he comes, he is absolutely staggered that the professional soldiers are so terrified. Now here's what he says, and it's really, really interesting. Note that he talks identity for both Goliath and the soldiers. He says this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He's not being personal. He's actually saying this guy is not part of God's people. Who is this uncircumcised, and therefore God's not with him. Who's this uncircumcised Philistine who comes against the armies of the living God? He says, you guys, you've got God on your side. What on earth do you think you're doing? Many of us know the story. He goes and gets five pebbles, puts one of them in his sling, hits Goliath in the temple. Goliath goes down. David moves quickly, just about manages to pick up the huge sword. Off with his head. The Israelite army suddenly charge of confidence. Philistines put her out. Why? Because David understood his identity. He understood who he was, and therefore he was not intimidated. What is intimidating you right now? What are the things that are massive challenges for you? And might the knowledge of your identity in Christ, loved, accepted, able to do more, able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me, make a difference? But you see, that's where we have to leave the shield of faith. Because if you're anything like me, when you're facing the challenges, the arrows come, and it's tempting to just go, yes, yes, you're right. I don't stand a chance. Rather than lift the shield of faith, extinguishes the fiery darts of the evil one, and you become a David rather than dismayed and terrified, like the other soldiers. You see how powerful the shield of faith is. It's the first thing that it does is it deals with our identity, strengthens our identity. The second thing, oh, I should say this as well. When you put the shield of faith up, you don't feel necessarily better straight away. You know, you, you're like, well, I've got my shield of faith up, but I'm still dismayed and terrified. What Paul says is, you are now these things in Christ. Live that way, and you will start in the end to feel that way. My guess is many of us here in this room get to fly internationally often. And 
quite a lot of us get to fly long distances. So we understand jet lag. Now, what do you do with jet lag? When, it is, when you look at your watch, when you're just feeling like, I've got to go to bed, and you look at your watch and you think, it's six o'clock in the evening. But you're thinking, my body's telling me it's two o'clock at night. What do you do at that point in time? You say, no, it's not two o'clock in the morning. It is six o'clock. I will stay awake. You live in the reality, the truth of the time. And as you live that way over a few days, you start to experience it. Well, it's just the same with the shield of faith. The shield of faith doesn't necessarily do it straight away. You could still feel like, ah, I feel dismayed. No, lift the shield of faith, live that way, and your body will start to catch up with the reality of who you are in Christ. That's what it is to have our identity in Christ, and it gives that strength. So the arrows come for our identity. The second thing, and for some of us, if we just know, hey, this is a huge issue for us right now, can I really encourage you to think about steps? I don't remember whether, uh, was it Christiana or, or Georgie? It was Georgie who mentioned it. We've had about 200 Christchurches who've done steps in the last couple of years. It has been hugely helpful for lots of them. I was talking to Lars about it, getting him to tell me some stories anonymously, but getting him to tell me some stories. I've no idea who's been on it. But getting me, and I, it, they were just so moving. So moving. And it's not just for people in church. Between 10 and 20% of those who are coming along are our friends who have not yet stepped into church. So bring your friends. If you want some company, grab the person who works opposite you and bring them along as well identity the second thing the second really important thing which these arrows get shot at is the promises that God gives us and tries to undermine many of us maybe all of us if we're listening to him get promises about what he wants to do with us in the future or ways he wants to use us or people he wants to see come to faith let me give you an example um uh best way of putting it is that um some of you know we've recently, I've recently been along with my family on a, an amazing family holiday and we've been out to the Far East and we actually went back to the site where Philippa, my wife and I met pretty much 30 years ago. Now that site was at the time the most notorious area of Hong Kong. It was called the Walled City. It was, the Cantonese called it the City of Darkness because it was dark. The rooms were jammed so close together that as you walked in, you had to get, your eyes had to adjust to the light and you would clap your hands so the rats would run away from you rather than towards you. And it was essentially, and it had been, it was run by the, triad, by the triad gangs and it was essentially brothels, drug dens and illegal gambling areas along with sort of accommodation above. And we had been there because of a young English woman. Some of you know the story. Her name is Jackie Pullinger. And she went out many years ago and found herself, this young English girl, she wasn't 25 yet. I mean, entirely unsuitable and inappropriate for this young girl to go into the walled city. But she said it was the most beautiful place she'd ever been to. She said she couldn't understand why everyone didn't want to go and live there. Because she said when she went in for the first time, she had a vision. And in her vision, she said, she saw young children playing in the streets. Well, in the walled city, the young children did not play in the streets because they were locked in their rooms for up to 18 hours a day while their mum and dad both went out to work. 
And she said, then she saw old men sitting on chairs watching the world go by, as old men should be allowed to do, at least from time to time. But actually, in the walled city in those days, it wasn't safe for anybody to sit anywhere. So these old men were actually like the children. They were in their rooms. And then she said she saw young ladies, young women, holding themselves with dignity, which was a big deal because if you were a woman in the walled city, the chances are you were employed in the brothels in one role or another. And once you've done that for a little while, it's very hard to have any sense of dignity. So this was the vision that Jackie had. Now, we go back 30 years later. The walled city has now been raised to the ground, and there's a beautiful park in its place. And as we're walking towards it, one of the family shouts, look, there are children playing. And there are literally children playing in the park. And we get a bit closer, and we look, and there are old men sitting on park benches watching the world go by. And there are tons of young mums They all carry dignity. They're also focused on stopping their children falling off bikes or whatever. But they they have something about them. And literally, we go and we think, this has all happened. It's all come about in this time. It's just amazing. I mean, unforeseen, but extraordinary. And what happened? Jackie was given a promise by God many years ago And she then worked tirelessly and played a role, not the only role, but played a role in the redeeming of that whole area. Now, there were many times, and I know her reasonably well, there were many times where she received fiery darts fired at her. Like, what on earth are you doing? You've got to be wasting your time. Because actually, when we were there, just a few weeks ago, there was a guy who my wife had worked with 30 years ago, He'd been off drugs for some time, but he was back right at the start of the journey. He'd obviously, you know, life had been difficult. He'd slipped up. He'd started taking heroin again. And when that happens, when you're working with people over and over and they see progress and then fall back again, you can like, what's the point? Fiery dark, give up. Then there's the, what, what am I doing doing this? That's one we can all identify with. I mean, Somebody else? Yes. Me? You've got to be joking. How would God use me like that? If you want another one, how about the power of the triads? I mean, would you like to explain just how that's going to be broken, that power's going to be broken in that area? So the fiery darts, pow, pow, pow. And Jackie would just keep going and keep going and keep going. Shield of faith, shield of faith, shield of faith. What are the fiery darts that get fired at you? What are the promises that you carry in your heart and which you need to lift the shield of faith in order to protect yourself? So the shield of faith strengthens our identity, keeps our identity strong, but also where we have things from God and we feel like he's given me a promise here. When, before I moved here to start this church, I was talking with my bishop, my leader, my pastor, And I wanted him to send us. And I remember saying to him once, I said, please, I said, we have the promises. And what I meant was God has promised us that if we come here, he will do this. And Bethnal Green and the Mermaid and Stockwell and lots and lots of other things as well. I said, I have those. And that was just my way of expressing it. What are the promises he's given you? They don't have to be grandiose. They're just whatever fits 
you as an individual and God's plans for you? What are the promises he's given you? All right, let's do a bit of application and we, ladies and gentlemen, are done. How do we do this? Firstly, we recognise the evil, the flaming darts for what they are. Unhelpful, undermining rubbish. Do not have a conversation with the flaming darts. You know, it was very easy for me to have done this last Monday before going up to talk at this conference. Why have they asked you? I could have very easily said, well, that's a very good point. I've been wondering the same myself. I, you know, I can't say I've got any idea. And you talk yourself down into a spiral. Do you know what I mean? Don't talk to them. Lift the shield of faith. Because we're told to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil, that they extinguish the fiery darts. You see, I mean, if there was a fiery, if somebody fired a fiery dart in here now, landed there, the first thing that one of us would do is put it out, isn't it? Because we'd know if you leave this flaming, we're in danger because it will multiply. So you've got to put it out. When's the easiest time to put a fire out? Just as it starts. Every moment that you leave it, it gets harder because it spreads. So don't play with them. Don't think about them. Don't discuss them. Don't acknowledge them. Kill them. Finish them off. And when you do that, you hardly notice, actually, that they've been fired in the first place. We extinguish them. Thirdly, we persevere. We keep going. I love the way that Paul says in this passage, he says, having done everything, well, what is there to do when you've done everything? Having done everything, we stand. And it's like this, you may try and knock me down a hundred times, but I am going to stand. I remember many years ago, three of us, actually, as undergraduates, three of us were meant to be going into a bar to advertise a mission that was going to be happening. And uh, I won't take time to go into all the details, but it's like it's freezing cold night that is literally thick fog. We're 15 minutes away and we're like, this is not a good idea. We don't want to do this. We don't want to go out. We don't want to walk. And we definitely don't want to make fools of ourselves in the bar. But we knew we had to do it. Got our coats on. We started walking and part of the shortcut to the bar was up a very steep incline. And we were walking in single file. And Tim's at the front. And as we're going, Tim starts singing. Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures. And then Ed, who's the next one, not that Ed, but another Ed. That Ed wasn't around. Um, my friend Ed then starts singing as well. And then I start singing. And it may sound a little cheesy, but it really, really helped. What have we done? Having done all, we stood. We persevered. We said, we are doing this. And we're going to keep going until it's done. So you acknowledge, you recognize the arrows for what they are. You don't talk to them, you don't discuss them, you don't play with them. You lift the shield of faith to extinguish them and then having done all, you stand. The shield of faith is the most wonderful gift for us. Use it every day. Use it in the morning when you wake up and you're assailed with all the things you don't want to do today. Use it late at night when you start worrying about what will happen in the morning. Use it in the middle of the day. 
Never leave it in your rucksack. Have it with you at all times. It's a wonderful gift. Let's stand together, shall we? All right, let's pray. Now, you may just, I just I'm, what I just asked you to do, I'm not asking you to do this publicly, but why don't you, would you acknowledge to yourself at least where you most need to lift the shield of faith? Where are you most vulnerable and where will the shield of faith most help and assist you? And then, I just like, we're just gonna have a moment's quiet and I'd like you to say to the Lord, if you're happy to, okay, I lift the shield of faith there. Lift the shield of faith there. Heavenly Father, we lift the shield of faith right now in the name of Jesus to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one in order that our hearts might be protected. Where evil darts have lodged in the spirits of women and men here, I break their power in Jesus' name and we take those arrows out in the name of Jesus. And I want to pray that right across this room faith would rise and we would become strong, strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, and that you would give us grace that having done all, we would stand. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.